Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome everyone to Gen C. Gen C is Generation Crypto. We focus on the people who are raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We also focus on how Web3 and Web2 brands are building for these audience specifically. I'm Sam Yuan from Coindesk, and as always, I'm co-hosted here with Avery Akinini from Vayner3. Avery, this is our 11th episode. So we now have 10 episodes in the can. So first of all, thank you for being such an amazing partner on this. And we're going to talk a little bit today about what we've learned in the last 10 episodes amongst a bunch of other topics. But first, how are you? Where are you? What are you doing? Hey, Sam. Good morning and happy 11th episode. I can't believe we've already done 10. It seems like time is just flying by on, you know, getting these out of the door. And it's been so fun to do this with you. And I feel like we're just getting started. I'm starting to get like LinkedIn DMs and Twitter messages for people who are getting inspired by some of what we're talking about and some of our incredible guests. So it's really fun to see this going somewhere with Gen C. I'm uh, sitting in San Francisco, California, about to present to one of our clients, Global Supply Chain Team. They're doing an offsite here and they're interested in learning about how blockchain can be applied across many of their you know, multi-billion dollar brands. So it's exciting to be here and it's even more exciting just to see the sort of surround sound of interest in Web3, not just from marketers, but from, you know, chief technology officers and CIOs and supply chain folks and you know, procurement people, it's really starting to ripple across different organizations as a point of interest and, you know, doing a lot of stuff working with our clients to educate their broader, you know, employee workforces. And it's pretty cool and interesting. So I'm very excited for this episode and I'm, you know, excited for what the rest of them will hold. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you bring up something that I think we all talk about a lot, but I don't think people generally think about is the opportunity that kind of the blockchain specifically lends to reimagining just general business, which is not about the financial speculation side of crypto at all. It's really about how the idea of a trustless, permissionless, immutable ledger can rethink how you do your general business systems. And the idea that you could prove, you know, where your ingredients are coming for a food, where that food happens to be in the delivery process when it's checked into stores, like all of those things that allow us to not think that there is the opportunity to sort of fudge the numbers 
but the fact that it can be open system could make business much more transparent. Do you think that there's an appetite for that or is the sort of obfuscation part of the business process these days? Yeah, I think there is an appetite for that. And I think there's an appetite for sort of more broadly what Web3 can offer to enterprises. I think, you know, even in our podcast, we've had on a lot of leading marketers and they think about this sort of from a marketing perspective, which is true. I think, you know, in a lot of cases, Web3 is that confluence of technology and cultural relevance. But there's also these, you know, business applications that are a little bit more like, you know, under the hood that are super tangible and super practical. And we've seen some companies like, you know, JP Morgan Chase or, you know, some companies in the financial services sector, like make sort of public announcements of this, some in the CPG space with sort of food and, you know, ingredient sourcing. But I think that will be increasingly a big topic and area of interest for enterprises as, you know, marketers often like lead the way in testing these new technologies for sort of shiny new opportunity. But with some of the stuff that we're talking about in Web3, particularly in the, you know, blockchain and increasingly AI departments, there are really far-reaching impacts. So it's cool to see enterprises approaching this from a multidimensional perspective. And I think it will continue to be something we talk more and more about on this podcast as you know the Web3 industry matures a little bit and as we start to see some real practical use cases. For any friends out there, you know we have Practical Peacock, and it's something that I'm constantly pushing my team to make sure what we're thinking about and recommending isn't just cool and a novel use of technology, but is practical versus applications. I love that. And I love that you guys focus on it. My first sort of deep dive into this was, I think, four years ago. I was a early buyer of the Stellar token, which came out, I think, in 2016, 2017, during the ICO boom. And it was a very community-focused token. And I remember IBM did a deal with them, which was, in essence, creating a blockchain around food security and the idea that you could sort of have provenance around ingredients and track food, especially in developing countries, which I thought was really just a fascinating use case. I believe they're still in it. They may have even built their own blockchain for this, if I remember correctly. But it's a great case study that's been around now for a bunch of years of a giant you know, brand looking at how blockchain can reimagine business. IDM has been a pioneer in this space in a lot of different ways. They actually also have an advertising solution that looks to sort of bridge the trust gap in digital advertising. I remember we first tested it something like 2018, and the scale was really, really small, but the technology is really interesting. And, you know, I, you know, continue to believe that there might be use cases for blockchain in digital advertising, sort of the more traditional digital ad network capabilities where there are big like trust gaps to fill. So I think that being able to enable real-time trusted data while providing consumers with more relevant ads and stronger privacy rights is something everybody agrees is a big opportunity. Right now, of course, there are some practical considerations of speed and scale that I think mm. need to be sorted out. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that the blockchain can do beyond just NFTs, which we focus on a lot on this podcast. So I guess something for us to consider bringing more use cases. More blockchain versus NFTs. Well, we just love NFTs. We think they're amazing. But <laughs> and a lot of people do think they're amazing. But NFTs are like a tiny, tiny portion of, you know, what blockchain's capabilities right. are and how they can be applied to enterprises. True. I think they're amazing, except for the like 100 NFTs that are in my wallet that I can't do anything with right now because the floor has fallen out. But that's a different show. So we've gone through 10 episodes of the show so far. And we thought for our 11th episode, we would kind of focus on some macro themes, some stuff that's been coming out, some recent news, but kind of have a one on one with each other just on some key kind of areas of business that are just sort of like common themes that we've been addressing 
And I think we'll treat this a little bit like a lightning round. You know, we'll spend a couple of minutes on each. It's a lot of fun stuff for us to get to. So I think this will be a great way for us to kind of level set. And really, as you mentioned, set up for the next bunch of episodes. We have some amazing guests coming as well as we'll be doing some live shows coming soon that we'll talk about in a future episode. So first, Avery, I want to talk about this sort of opportunity around ticketing and NFTs and collectibles. This week, the Rolling Loud Festival announced something called Loud Punks. It's uh, loudpunks.com. It's punks with an X. And it, in essence, is a lifetime pass for people to get into Rolling Loud festivals anywhere in the world if you have this NFT. It's 1.5 ETH. So right now it's about $2,200, but it means you're basically getting VIP access for the rest of your life as long as they are doing the festival. So first, what are your thoughts on just the concept of a lifetime pass? I know VCon has a, I believe a three-year pass that you guys did. So, you know, you've thought a lot about this. What's your take on the lifetime pass? I think a lifetime pass is really interesting for a consumer because you can, you know, really trust that this is going to be something of high value and it shows a lot of long-term commitment. I think about like the LLB and like forever return policy, which probably very few people take them up on, but it's kind of iconic of showing how committed they are to their products. On the practical side, I think it's very challenging logistically because things change all the time. Ticketing vendors change executives change, leadership changes, teams change. And I think Gary was really spot on with launching vFriends as access to VCon for three years, because that's a specific number that while it shows like commitment for several years also doesn't promise forever, because forever is a very long time. So we haven't done any of these sort of like lifetime as I've done a lot of stuff that's time bound, just out of pure being practical. And what I think is great is you can always add on as the NFT creator and owner, you can always add more. Like there's so many things that we've, you know, given out holders that were never part of what we promised. And I think it's always better to over deliver versus under deliver. And, you know, I'm a huge believer in NFT ticketing as a use case. We've done this not only for vFriends events, but also for a number of different Vayner 3 events. We work very closely with the token proof team. I know we had Fonz on. And we shared a little bit about how we've leveraged, you know, these NFT tickets as a collectible, but it's also access and it can get, you know, perks to more. And I think it's a very tangible, real thing for a lot of, you know, brands who invest in experiential activations. But my preference would always be to add more on top after the fact versus promising a lot upfront. Because I think when I've seen other groups try to commercialize these, even if there's an incredible idea it's still a behavior that's new to the non-Web3 native consumer. Like you look at something like Superfly and, you know, of course they started Bonnaroo and Outside Lands and they launched Superfest. I actually got a couple. I love Rich and his team. I think they're amazing. And, you know, I think just in terms of like sell-through, it was challenging because of all the costs that go into it. Even as they're building this really cool community with these people who you know are legends in the space. So I think rolling loud and loud punks you know, are trying to appeal to the Web3 natives. That's probably a lesson they've learned from some other groups who just tried to sell this to normies. But I don't think it's so easy to do that. And then delivering on that as well is, of course, a big commitment. So I'm rooting for Rolling Loud. And I hope that this is successful. I think, you know, it's a multidimensional opportunity for them and giving access to all their festivals. But forever is a long time. A little alpha, we were very close to announcing our kind of limited edition ticket opportunity that comes as part of consensus, which we'll talk about soon. 
But so we've been thinking a lot about this. We've taken a lot of great inspiration from what you guys have done with Vcon, some other folks have done in this space. And I agree. I think the idea that you're going to tie yourself to a technology in essence for as long as you are going to run an event and all of the support systems that need to go on feels like you're setting yourself up for a nice financial windfall in the beginning and then a long tail of potential cost on the outside. You know, setting up and running events is challenging. Having teams dedicated to support this group of people forever feels like a lot. And I love what you're saying about the idea of make it surprise and delight. If you wanted to do a fourth year or a fifth year, you could always add that. If you wanted to do other things, you can kind of make that special as a reward versus committing to something that you don't know the lifespan of in the beginning. It feels a little like a PR trick. I'm not saying they're doing it, but you know, I also could see the a couple of years from now announcement, hey guys, we're sunsetting this, everyone's gonna get a VIP pass for the last con, you know, show round and then we're gonna be done. All right, topic two. We've seen a ton of activity this week on the idea of open editions. We've touched on them for good and for bad, but I've been starting to think what can brands learn from this? Just to sort of put it out there, this last couple of weeks we saw an artist named Nest do a, over $2 million on an open edition. We've seen what Lucrest has done. Mad Dog Jones did one this past week. Thank You X did one this past week. It seems to be the kind of trend among the artist set is the open edition. I personally am a little skeptical on it and I'll tell you why, but I wanna hear your thoughts first. But what I want you to do is if you can, frame what lessons you think brands could take away from the open edition strategy. Yeah, so I'm actually a believer in open editions for brands. And I think that for brands and for like seasoned artists, it's a very, very different game. The first like major artist that at least caught my attention who was doing an open edition was the Max Payne open edition on Nifty Gateway by X Copy. I think it was open for like just a few minutes. And like, I remember I was at dinner. 10 and minutes like, actually. Minting it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like minting it like while I was at dinner, my husband was like glaring at me. Anyway, I remember that that was the first one and he made several million dollars in that. And, you know, everyone was like, well, he's never going to do one again. And then like a few months later, I was like, why wouldn't he do one again? He made several million dollars in like 10 minutes. It seems like something he should definitely do. There's a lot of speculation that sort of like led into that success of like he was going to make them one of ones or something like that. Last time I checked my Nifty Gateway wall, it seems like it is not a one of one. It seems like it is still a one of a few thousand. <laughs> And, you know, he kind of kicked that wave off in late 2022. I think we're seeing a lot of artists kind of catch on to this as a low pressure way to do something because the supply is, of course, one of the most challenging things to figure out as an artist and as a creator in the space. It's like the more limited the supply, of course, the more rare the piece is and theoretically desirable in a lot of ways. And open edition kind of like lets that not be a huge concern and if you're someone who's looking at this as not a way to make money, I love an open edition. So we've done a lot of this for our brands where it's an open edition and like people can claim one and like the more the merrier, but it is an instrument of financial speculation at all. Versus, you know, for an artist, I think knowing that like, hey, I'll just give examples for a photographer that I might admire is like, great, there's 24 of these. And like, I want to buy one and pay this because there's only 24. I wouldn't be thrilled if like that number goes from 24 to 24,000, right? Because I think as a collector, you're sort of using that to calculate into your value. And I think what you're kind of getting at, Sam, is this idea of like jumping on a trend train just because people see this is a strategy that's working. Uh, you know, people are calling this open edition season. So it's working for now, but I think that the same sort of principles of collecting 
mean a lot of like big collectors aren't really participating in these open editions. It's more, you know, people who are interested in sort of like riding this wave or, you know, the good case is people who might not be able to afford a one-on-one of their favorite artists, but yet they can collect something from an open edition at a lower price point. The Nest Graphics thing was amazing. Like that also kind of kicked off this mini run towards it. But what I think brands can take away is the fact that these have been normalized. Even like a year ago, it wasn't normal to do an open edition drop. So open editions have been normalized. Having a larger collector base can be a good thing, which is of course desirable for brands, like the more the merrier, unless you're in like sort of this luxury sector. And keeping your ear to the ground is so important. Things change really fast in this world of Web3 and the brands who can react appropriately. You know, Bezer sort of did this like little reaction uh, meme to the checks piece that like went a little bit of mini viral. I think brands who are plugged into what's happening in culture, like always find those relevant moments. I think you're right. Max Payne, which was a piece by Xcopy. I just did a little bit of the back of the envelope math. I believe there's close to 7,500 pieces were minted in 10 minutes. Each one at the time was the equivalent of, I think it was $3,000. So he made $22 million. And he's one of the most, I would say, premier OG crypto artists out there. So I think, yeah, the idea that, you know, you can get access to this artist, I think spot on. The thing I noticed, and you mentioned you have one, I still have one as well, is the floor price on those right now is the equivalent of about $1,200, $1,100, depending on the price of Ethereum. So right now, all of us who have purchased those are still underwater quite a bit on our financial investment. So I think it's part of, do you want to be in the X copy club, which I'm happy to be in just to support the work that they do. But I do think one of the things we've been seeing a lot of is most of the artists who are releasing these open editions, the value of them has dropped. There are very few examples where we've had an open edition that has run up. And I think one of the things I look at and, you know, I minted an open edition of a photo I took out in the streets really just to play with it on the Manifold contract. And Manifold is one of the platforms out there that has really pushed this. They've made it really easy for creators to do it. But one of the things I think is interesting is when I created it, I did it as a free claim. I set it as six weeks of open claim time. Again, just I wanted to play with the different mechanics of it. And that's where I think I think there's something about the free claim versus the low cost claim, which is really interesting. Again, from a brand level, you mentioned, and so much of marketing is about widening your funnel for the people who can get in. And so whether you're an artist, whether you're an up and coming brand, whether you're an established brand, to have 10,000, 20,000, 2,000 people playing around in your ecosystem that you then can reward later, I think is a total benefit if you thought through that. If you're an artist who just wants to make your work more accessible, also noble and great thing to do, I do think that the, you know, investor beware a little bit within the art space, because I don't think we've seen a proven model on the open edition that sort of been a great investment in general. I'm very happy to support small artists, especially. And I think that's something to look at the up and coming artists. You can get in relatively cheaply. And a lot of open editions on these newer artists end up being editions of 30 or 40 by the time they close. So you can actually get in and support an artist in the beginning of their career in a great way, as opposed to, you know, for Nest Graphics, like it or not, still at 20,000 plus pieces, it feels a little bit to me like this is, you know, the limited edition poster you see in the MoMA store that you put on your wall, but not really a work of art, you know, in that respect. All right. So I want to move on to our next topic. Now, Avery, I'm going to play you something and then we're going to talk about it. But I'm ready for a wild ride Falling from the sky, jumping in the sea Where I 
I see is hollows waiting for me to be Falling from the sky, my head is in my chest These hoes sit filled with hollows that was A.I. Drake rapping about hot dogs falling from the sky. And it was a track that was released about a week ago where the lyrics, the voice, and the kind of video that accompanies it all were generated by A.I. You know, I mean, it's probably not Drake's best song, but it's, you know, also sort of feels very Drake. The thing that really sparked for me was the kind of idea of the creator's dilemma when it comes to A.I. And I think brands are having an interesting moment. I had a conversation with someone pretty high up at one of the big advertising holding companies. And we were talking about Web3 as we often do. And I said, you know, what do you think the kind of impression has been after, you know, what has been a kind of crazy and tumultuous time, but where we've also seen brands come in. And he said to me that it's interesting, a lot of brand Web3 energy is going to AI right now. And I just thought about this for a second. I want to get your thoughts on it because I said, you know, to myself, I was like, AI is, I think, a tool. It's one thing that allows you to expand your creativity and model your creativity in different ways. But Web3 is a community layer. And so it felt a little off base that brands in his mind, and again, he comes from a, you know, a world of the advertising industry where often the hottest technology is the thing that a lot of brands focus on. But the idea that they would sort of be shifting focus from Web3 to AI felt very, very short term. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on two things. One is you know, this concept that is some of the air being taken out of brand Web3 because AI is the new hot thing. And secondly, kind of on both the brand and the creator level, as we do think of Web3, how should brands think of AI as a tool that they can help create their Web3 presence or expand their Web3 presence? I would love your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been actually spending a lot of time with AI at Vayner 3. I think like six months ago, I, you know, forbade my team to be using stock imagery unless they at least tried in an AI first, because I see AI as such an enabler of creativity and something that's inevitable. Like AI is nothing new. I remember in 1996, like the, you know, IBM supercomputer beat the chess grandmaster. And I was like, what? You know, I was like a little kid and my parents were talking about that. And it was crazy to me that a computer could be like, you know, a serious expert in their field. So AI is nothing new and AI's capabilities expand far beyond digital marketing. But back to what we were talking about at the top of this episode, I think when emerging technology meets cultural relevance, that's when it matters. And that's when consumers care. And whatever consumers care about is what brands care about because they have to be consumer centric in their communication and in their marketing efforts. So to me, the Web3 universe is a little bit more expansive, probably, and includes AI. I think there are, you know, broad buckets of like blockchain, which of course is NFTs, is crypto. There's broad buckets of these immersive experiences, which includes metaverses, decentralized and centralized, sometimes parts of gaming. And it also includes this like advanced computing bucket, which I think can, you know, include AI and machine learning sort of applied all with this like cultural layer, to your point, this ethos of decentralization and of co-creation, I think is actually driving a lot of this, right? When I think about why marketers are interested in AI, and this is the shiny new toy, it's actually not so different from the reasons that they were interested in NFTs a year ago. There's something that's gaining a lot of popularity with users. That's a new technology that's hitting sort of its stride for cultural relevance and can unlock business objectives. So you know, to me, Web3 is like the next iteration of connected consumer behavior on the internet. 
And there are going to be parts of it that are very blockchain enabled. There are parts of it that are going to be very AI enabled. But I think about this as more like a solar system where they're kind of all orbiting together, sometimes overlapping, but all kind of laddering back to this idea of a more, you know, user-owned, co-created internet. And AI is absolutely part of that. AI is unlocking the ability for anybody to, you know, scale their writing capabilities through things like ChatGPT or anybody to be a designer through products like Midjourney or Flare, where you nicely connected me to Mickey. To me, there's actually a lot of commonalities and it's part of the same ecosystem. With that said, I think the practical applications for marketers, digital marketers of AI are really, really tangible in a way that NFTs and blockchain can be very daunting. You know, whether you're talking about concept like strategy and, you know, pulling together and synthesizing research for a brief, or you're talking about concepting, coming up with creative ideas, or you're talking about, you know, copywriting and, you know, thinking up taglines and headlines, you're talking about production of digital assets, mock-ups and storyboards and, you know, variations. A lot of the tools that have been popularized in just the last few weeks really enable that at speed and scale, which is super important to marketers, particularly marketers with in-house teams. So it's actually been something we've been working on with a few of our partners. In the same way we talk about like, you know, NFTs and crypto, it has to start with education. There's a ton of legal considerations. You can't just, you know, whip something up on Dolly 2 and post it on your brand Instagram. Like that's not how it works. You need to be really understanding where the stuff is coming from and how to use it. And just like anything, like, you know, you give it a great brief, it gives a great output. You give it crap, it has a crap output for a brief. So I don't think these, you know, are completely ready for mainstream, but ChatGPT having a hundred million users just makes this so big that I don't think marketers can ignore it. But I think the smart marketers really see this as part of the next iteration of the internet, not like a shiny new toy to test for three months. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer marketers, advertisers, brand leaders, creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Let me go a little deeper on that because I think this is such a fascinating area and I think everyone has questions. Part of our job, especially, you know, on the journalistic side is to make sure that we are truly looking at the, you know, both the ethical and the practical of this. My concern is, you know, we've all been very bullish, I think, on the idea of this creator economy and this ownership economy and that we are giving especially creators a pathway to a kind of self-sustaining lifestyle where by being a creative, you have other people who then want to support your career in a very one-to-one way, which is fantastic. I think we have seen a ton of folks who generate some stuff in AI, release a collection and sell, you know, and you got to wonder if the idea that you can kind of craft a great prompt or copy a great prompt from another, you know, mid-journey creation and make your own. And within a few minutes, you could have something that looks and feels like either something unique or looks and feels like something that's sort of derivative of a popular art style. Even this week, you know, or at least the last week and a half, we saw Josie Bellini, Claire Silver, Trevor Jones, Pinder Van Armen, all amazing creators release pieces that was a kind of combination of art and AI. But all of those people are amazing creators and true artists. And I think they're trying to figure out how AI works in their work stream. 
And I think they're putting in the time and the effort to create and craft really masterful projects. I'm a little worried about the brand that says, you know, make me a 1000 piece PFP collection that has monkeys, giraffes and penguins in the style of Gary Vaynerchuk. And then suddenly within, you know, a few minutes can create something that may have taken someone else a long time to do. And because these engines really are trained on existing art styles, there is something that I feel is a bit of a challenge whether we ethically should be comfortable with that. Again, I'm not saying that AI isn't a productivity help. It really, really is. But I do worry about the place of the artist when AI can take the energy out of the room. I will also say yesterday, I was on a chat with Bobby Hundreds. I think it was he or someone in the chat shared. There's a Twitch channel that has a never-ending episode of Seinfeld that they basically trained an AI engine to do rudimentary graphics on and rudimentary dialogue and voices. And I'll try to find the channel. We'll put it in the show notes. But the idea is you can kind of watch, which is right now not a very good Seinfeld episode, but it sort of feels like Jerry's apartment. All the characters look like the Seinfeld characters. The dialogue and the laugh track are all baked in. And, you know, it's early stages, but you could see how fast AI works that six months from now, a year from now, we may never need to write another sitcom if AI can do a better job at it. So I guess I'm just, you know, I hear you and I definitely support what you're saying as this being a real asset, but I'm just wondering, and I would love to, you know, hear your thoughts on kind of what the true dark side is. And for brands, what does it mean when they've spent the last 10 years really supporting creators to now be supporting something or involved with something that may take the creator out of the equation? Yeah, I think those are really good challenges, Sam. And, you know, one of the things that I think and worry about all the time is like a deep fake, right? Of like someone like Gary. And it's not an if, it's a when. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. So, you know, the way I think about leveraging AI is probably a little bit different. I don't think it takes creators out of the equation. I think it enables a next layer for them because there's always a new medium, right? Like the same way people you know, thought impressionism or photography was like not art. And people come up with like incredible new things when they're given new tools. I think that we're actually going to see like a creative renaissance of artists who really lean into AI to do something cool and unique. I don't think there's any stopping the train either. And, you know, what I was mentioning of like the prompt is everything. People are going to get so good at prompts and you have to be really creative to do one of these. You know, this creative director on my team, I, like I was mentioning, been having them use AI quite a while for our you know, mock-ups and storyboards and things like that. And he's gotten really good. He actually just won a competition for AI. His artist name is Bear Brains. And he has a very unique style that is kind of iconic. He has some art collectors and he's actually trained the AI to like paint in his specific style, but do things that might like have limitations of how long it takes to 3D model or a technique that he isn't very comfortable with himself. I actually see this as an extension and explosion of his creativity and that Seinfeld's extension can only work because it's pulling off something that already exists. Original thought and original creativity is going to continue to be like the currency and you won't need like 4,000 production assistants like blotting Jerry, right? Um, <laughs> I think that it actually unlocks creators' ability to be more creative, but it's a slippery slope. And the thing that I worry about more than sort of the scaling is actually the inspiration definitely not legal advice. But right now, a lot of what these AI tools are pulling from is like public information that might be actually owned by an artist, right? Like if you're saying in the style of Norman Rockwell, you're saying in the style of Gary Vaynerchuk, that's actually infringing on their intellectual property potentially. So I think that's going to be mm -hmm. a bigger challenge that people need to kind of cross over. It's the reason we don't use any of the outputs right now for like external facing materials. It's kind of like internal only 
But I think that'll change as there's more clear regulation and as open AI, you know, maybe as part of this Microsoft deal, they'll be under a little bit more legal scrutiny. So I see this as an unlock for creators, but as with anything, a lot of the sort of like repetitive style tasks can be replaced and automated, which is, you know, not great for job growth. But I think we're going to see a lot of prompt engineer jobs popping up. And just like anything, people who take the time to really understand it, like you clearly have, and understand the nuance because it isn't black and white. It's something you really need to think about and contextualize for your own business or, you know, your own marketing objectives. So, you know, whether you're talking about NFTs mm. or crypto mm-hmm. or AI or AR, it's oftentimes the same sort of senior decision makers and stakeholders who are deciding where to put a company's efforts. So I've definitely seen that. We've had a lot of, you know, conversations and, you know, work with some of our partners in this area already. And, you know, I think it does fit in this next era of the internet, but you have to be careful just like with anything. Yep. I'm sure we could do an entire show on AI, um, both ethically and not. One thing that I will do in just a very meta way is in the show notes, I will put a link to an AI generator that can generate creative prompts for you. Even the prompt tuning itself can be driven by AI, which I think is pretty fascinating. All right, quick. Next story that I want to get your thoughts on is Mojito, which is part of uh, Serotonin, very kind of Web3 native creative agency folks and tool set. They released a chart which comes from Dune Analytics from last month. So this is pretty up-to-date information, which charted the top 12 brands, kind of traditional brands who have released NFT projects and what their revenue was. One thing I found really interesting is from the number one, which is Nike, and we'll talk about that in a second, to the number 12 brand, which was McLaren, the difference in total revenue is 185 plus million dollars. So, you know, on the high end, we have Nike with their total revenue as of January being 186 million. And on the bottom, we have McLaren with their total revenue being 335,000. And that's the top 12. So there's a giant sort of uh, spectrum here of what success looks like. Now, I will say, and I was talking to our friend Camilla at Mojito about this, that You know, Nike, I think, is skewed because their revenue is counting Artifact and Artifact did a tremendous amount of money pre-acquisition. So I do think that that is one of the challenges in this specific chart is it's looking at it in the aggregate where they really paid and acquired. So whether or not they should be credited with the revenue. But going to the second, which is Dolce & Gabbana at 23 million, Tiffany at 12 million, Gucci at 11, Adidas at 11. I mean, a lot of people are making some significant money and revenue. And I know when we were talking to Sophie Kelly last week from Diageo, she was talking about the Rare Whiskies project, which I just keep going back to in my head of how amazing that was. But I guess, you know, how do you advise brands to think of this from a revenue perspective versus attention versus building an audience or creating a new audience? Like, where do you advise brands to think when it comes to revenue? Yeah. So I think revenue is one of the potential benefits of NFTs. But if you look at a lot of these sort of early adopters, they were at a really interesting time in the market where there was a lot of demand for them. And it's actually funny, one of the ones that isn't shown here, but is, you know, done the most revenue from a brand perspective is actually Pepsi. The funny thing is it was free and they've never taken a penny on royalties. I think the reality, so like when you look at just like total revenue for brand projects, Pepsi actually hasn't taken any, but there's been, you know, several million dollars of activity in secondary, which is funny. So some of these charts end up including Pepsi, even though they haven't made a dime on it. And the reason for that is very much legal in a lot of ways. I think a lot of our partners, and you can see that Tiffany and Anheuser-Busch don't take secondary royalties. A lot of our partners are looking for sort of additional regulatory clarity before they take something like a secondary royalty with the, you know, potential 
how exactly that revenue will be considered. Because, you know, yes, it's a nice chunk of change, but if you're a multi-billion dollar corporation, you're not going to blow up your whole business to make $4 million. Revenue is not something that we are discussing as like a primary driver for a lot of our brand partners who are getting in the space. And here's why. First, I think a lot of partners are sort of in explore and learn. Second, we've seen a lot of negative backlash for brands who have over-commercialized. And that's actually turned into like a PR negativity. And third, we see commercialization as an absolute opportunity, but not the primary motivator for why brands should want to participate in this space. So, you know, you can look at all of our marketing materials. I don't think anywhere on our website it says anything around, you know, selling NFTs or how much money a lot of the NFT projects we've worked on have done. And that's intentional. It's because we believe that this is just like one part of a larger reason, a larger, like dramatic shift in consumer behavior that brands need to be understanding and be a part of. And, you know, I think for a lot of the brands that we work on, at least, you know, scale and community building and connecting with consumers in a new way are far more like interesting and more of a priority than trying to make a couple million bucks. Although that of course never hurts. And if we've got the right program that has the right, you know, utility planned and really merits it or requires that level of brand investment, then it's absolutely something we do. And, you know, we've done successfully several times. Yeah, I think it's really important for brands to understand why they're coming in. And you frankly know more about this than most people. So I think that that's a great takeaway, which is to understand why you're doing it, but also to understand that the regulatory environment is kind of murky at the moment. So really just be cautious. There's a ton of Web3 brands who I think are just assuming they'll have to deal with that later. But I think being a traditional brand, it's probably overexposing yourself to think of revenue as a true driver of why to get into Web3 versus connection, community, loyalty, membership, all of that stuff. All right. So to wrap up, one last question. We have the Super Bowl coming. I think we had, you know, heard a little bit of potential alpha from Sophie that there might be something coming on from Diageo as the whiskey brands are now able to advertise. But in general, what do you think or do you think we will see any Web3 love, any opportunities that Web3 will bring to the big game? Yeah, for sure. So my take is we'll see a couple of different like Web3 embedded activations. I don't think it'll be the crypto bowl that we saw last year. Last year, several different crypto companies, some of which are no longer in existence, had big activations related to the Super Bowl. RIP FTX. Yes, it will be a little bit more muted. But I think we'll see more integration of like, great, you know, brand is doing a spot or something and they're linking it maybe to a metaverse activation or, you know, a collectible or something of that nature. And I do think we might see one or two like sort of wet three natives trying to make a play. And I guess my hot take on that one is I think very web three natives trying to go straight to the mainstream audience without a lot of contextualization is going to be pretty challenging because it just requires a lot of understanding. And like, you know, I've worked on a lot of Super Bowl commercials. You kind of need to get your message in there in a really clear way. And it's hard to do that with some of these like very, you know, intricate NFT native projects. But Sam, what do you think? What are your hot takes? Um, I guess what I'm wondering is, and I have zero knowledge, you may be closer than I am, but just the fact that Dapper and the NFL signed that deal last year, is there a kind of very light consumer way that people get in that's actually kind of more an NFL initiative that comes out? I remember last year, you mentioned the crypto ball. We saw a ton of crypto commercials agree. We will not see nearly as many this year. But I do think when we think of the like Coinbase bouncing QR code, I wonder if there is going to be a couple of kind of claim this collectible moment, even if it's a little bit of a side thought to some of the commercials. And then I guess the final thing would be gaming. And I don't know exactly how it's going to show up, but I wonder if in some respects, Metaverse plays a bigger role than Web3 at the big game this year in the sense of, you know, I still think there's a ton of interest in what the future of 
immersive experiences are. And for those who are building, and I don't know if it's like a Roblox or something, but you know, there could be something interesting around kind of more of a metaverse play than a traditional kind of NFT Web3 play. So I'm sort of fascinated. We'll keep our eyes open. Obviously, we'll cover it on the show. But I think you're right. It'll be a lot less, but there'll be something. And I'm excited to talk about it with you. With that, thank you so much as always. Happy number 11. And I look forward to all the ones in the future with you. Thank you so much for this, Sam. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. As always, hit us up. Tell us your thoughts, what's working, who you want to hear from. And everyone have a wonderful day. Thank you.